0: And, and he was just simply saying, look, Dawkins and Co, they got it wrong. It's, it's actually, you can't simply ignore the way that Christianity gave us a, a foundation.
1: Welcome back to the show that loves doubters. Today, Bobby speaks with Justin Briley. Justin is a UK broadcaster, writer, and speaker who hosted the Unbelievable Show and Ask N.T. Write Anything podcast for many years. He currently hosts the Reenchanting podcast and a newly launched documentary podcast series, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. Now, Justin's latest book is also called The Surprising Rebirth of the Belief of God, Why New Atheism Grew Old and Secular Thinkers Are Considering Christianity Again. Now, this is the topic of conversation today. Bobby and Justin, over to you. Thank you, Tim. Justin, it is so good to
0: see you again. And thank you for joining us on Christianity Still Makes Sense. Thank you so much, Bobby. It's so good to see you. Um, it's been too long, and I'm, I'm hoping to actually be with you in person at some point in the not too distant future.
2: Well, I would love that. Every time uh, you know I've got to be in your presence, it's just a joy. And I'm just so thankful for how God is using you and has used you, and I know he will continue to use you. When I think about the way, Justin, that you have been used, and we're gonna talk about your book that's coming out and how exciting it is to see in a lot of ways this crumbling of the new atheism movement. And yet a lot of these people are your friends. I mean, you modeled for us so well that it's possible to have good conversations with people, and I'm just so thankful. So when you think about all the years you did with Unbelievable and what's up next, how do you feel like the tide has changed with the new atheism movement? from the time you began till now and maybe start off by defining the new
0: atheism yeah well it, it's been an absolute privilege to kind of be a bystander and a contributor in a lot of these conversations uh, and i yeah hosted the unbelievable show for over 17 years really from that those early times really of the new atheism when it was really at its height the new atheism you could define as a kind of very anti-theistic quite um caustic uh, and mm. Uh, in in some ways, a, a, a really, um, I, I think abusive is probably over the top, but 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 wasn't afraid to use ridicule to, to kind mm-hmm. of cast its aspersions and criticisms of Christianity in the church. And it was led by some well-known names, uh, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris. These were the sort of people that are often associated as the four horsemen of the new atheism. It was a movement that essentially was about rallying atheists together against the, the forces of religion, against Christianity. And it had some, I guess, high water marks in the UK. For instance, there was an atheist bus campaign around 2008, 2009, proclaiming there's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life mm-hmm. circulating on London buses. Uh, over on your side of the pond in the US, there was the Reason Rally in 2012, you know, where tens of thousands of skeptics and atheists descended on Washington DC, you know, to champion science and reason and so on. So, so it was this kind of really interesting time when um, God was being talked about in really open ways, which was obviously a good thing, but obviously the the, the tone of the conversation wasn't always great because it was often done in, in this very dismissive, almost mm. arrogant way, you know, towards the claims of faith. So I was fascinated to be, you know, hosting conversations, debates with some of these, you know, leading people from the New Atheist movement, opposite amazing Christian thinkers. But yeah, it did change over the years that I was doing doing the show. And and to some extent, the the beginning of the book that I've written is is kind of charting the rise and fall of the new atheism and how the conversation did actually end up changing in the last several years
2: mm yeah i mean in the conversations that you had it was just so fascinating for me just to listen and just again i love the way you moderated and i think all christians did for the most part except for maybe mark driscoll
0: <laughs> <laughs> for,
2: for those that remember
0: yeah there's 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 an interesting episode in the archives if anyone can, <laughs> can stomach it to, to go and listen to me me and mark driscoll going oh, at it together
2: oh man yeah but you know um i I just finished up C.S. Lewis, um, you know, in God in the doc. And he has this statement and I thought was, you know, really apropos to what you're talking about, you know, he said there's no use going around attacking each other's psychological states about what they believe. That doesn't help the argument advance. We need to get down to, you know, really what is true and why we really believe it instead of, you know, making people feel you know, ashamed because of their beliefs. And I think you really did a great job of modeling, let's not attack the psychological state. So why do you think this is happening in the culture today where you're seeing a reduction of these new atheists and where are the eyes being opened and why do you think the atheism worldview is unsustainable, Justin?
0: Well, I think new atheism, as I say, kind of had its heyday in those sort of late 2000s, early 2010s. And to some extent, what I witnessed was the movement kind of running out of steam to some extent. Um, So I think I started to notice it when increasingly when atheists were coming on my show, they were often actually distancing themselves from the new atheist movement. They were often saying things like, well, I'm not a Richard Dawkins kind of atheist, Mm -hmm. because I think the movement itself came to have a certain kind of almost quasi-religious status itself. Um, It it became very invested in, you know, scientific materialism as the only explanation for life and the universe and everything. Um, And if you, you know, dared to question, you know, or move outside of that orthodoxy almost, you were rounded on as a heretic. So I can think of a well-known philosopher Thomas Nagel, who published a book called Mind and Cosmos, where he kind of dared mm-hmm. to suggest there might be some kind of purpose or meaning in the universe. And the new atheist, you know, leaders really rounded on him because he was going outside of the bounds of what was their kind of orthodoxy, effectively. So I think I think to some extent, people started to see that it, it was taking on an almost religious nature. Um, I think it also suffered a lot of internal problems. Um, to some extent, it was... It, as soon as they the new atheists had agreed that god didn't exist and religion was bad for you they couldn't really agree on anything else and the movement fractured and splintered into lots of different warring factions over issues like um you know women's rights and lgbt rights and that kind of thing you know there was a movement that wanted to push in the direction of being atheism plus so plus mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a commitment to all these kinds of issues, whereas others felt that this was just, you know, ideologically driven. This wasn't what atheism was about. It's just about, you know, non-belief in God and reason and science. And they felt that this was all getting too politically correct and went off in the other direction. And and really, I think that was the the start of the undoing of the movement, because by the end of that period, when they were having these infighting kind of moments, uh, the controversies and the fallouts and, you know, to the point where some of these atheist leaders were unwilling to share stages anymore, just meant that the whole movement started to suffer in that way, and and on top of that, I think it just in the end, a lot of people just moved on. They they realized the new atheism wasn't really once it had said its thing, it didn't have much else to offer, and so it kind of I, I think I think the the steam kind of went out of the movement in that way.
2: Yeah, I, I it's very obvious, and it's you know it, it's it's a reminder that sometimes something can seem like it's gaining such traction in the culture and it can implode and I think even as we're sitting across the pond from you uh, we're seeing some of kind of the flags you're putting up about let's slow this whole process down on transgenderism and you know we're just going you know all in over here and you just see that maybe some of these things that seem so strong like the world's changing They die out and here is Christianity. It's stuck around. And I think about Jana Harmon. Uh, We were in the same Ph.D. program together at the University of Birmingham. And I know that, uh, you know, she loves your your program and you know her as well. But in her research, she discovered after interviewing 100 former atheists that became believers, that 54 percent of them found that their worldview under atheism was unsatisfactory, yet they still held on to what they believed to be the truth, even though they did not believe there was anything sustainable about it. So Mm. with that thought in mind, and changing over now to your book, tell us a little bit about your book, because I think that what you're going to want to say in that book is, hey, this isn't a satisfying worldview on new atheism and people are onto that. And so tell us what it's called and why you decided to write it and what
0: people can get out of it. Well, the book is called The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. The subtitle is Why New Atheism Grew Old and Secular Thinkers Are Considering Christianity Again. And and essentially, the the book is really, it's encapsulated in that subtitle. It's talking about that rise and fall of new atheism, but the way in which the conversation really changed so that the the audience that were with the new atheists, I think, transferred to a new set of secular intellectual thinkers, but ones who were taking Christianity far more seriously. I think these new thinkers realised that new atheism hadn't delivered answers for people's ultimate questions around meaning and purpose and identity. And so you started to see, as the sort of the Dawkins and the Hitchens and the Harris and so on, their kind of star began to wane, if you like, Um, you you saw the rise of people like Jordan Peterson, again, who's not a Christian, Mm -hmm. but very well-known secular psychologist Mm -hmm. and filling, you know, auditoriums with three-hour lectures on the book of Genesis, for goodness sake. I mean, (laughs) these were secular people that he was kind of attracting to these these things. And you've got to ask, well, where did that come from? And, And my contention is simply that people like Peterson, um, became well known and drew these great audiences because people were looking still for purpose and meaning that that kind of god-shaped hole had not been filled by new atheism and the church isn't always a great place or a great does a great job at actually addressing the sort of the secular needs and so what i've increasingly been seeing is people like peterson and many others i could mention who are kind of almost secular prophets from outside the church but who are showing us What's going on in our culture that there is this search for meaning, for purpose, for identity? And that the, the things that people are currently seeking to try and fill that void with, that they're the kind of trying to create stories to make sense of life for themselves, they're just not doing the job. You mentioned transgenderism, you know, it's, it's a good example, I think, of where we're seeing a real drive in our culture for people to kind of make sense of who they are through a specific kind of identity. But very often, it just creates more confusion and more sort of, you know, uh, competition and c- uh, controversy in culture than, than, yeah. than actually producing a kind of good outcome. And, and for me, it, it's symptomatic of the way people need something to live for. They need some kind of identity, but they're, they're, they're often looking in the wrong places. And what I found fascinating about a lot of these thinkers, that I was starting to bump into was that they were taking the Christian story seriously again. They weren't mm. dismissing it like the new atheists were. They were saying, well, I don't believe, but it turns out that Christianity probably is responsible for all the moral values we hold in the West. You know that, That's the, 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 the point of view of someone like Tom Holland, who's a well-known sure. popular historian here in the UK and has this tremendously well-listened to podcast around the world called The Rest is History. And, and he came to the conclusion as a secular person that Christianity was what had given us all our virtues and values in the West. And and he was just simply saying, look, Dawkins and Co, they got it wrong. It's, it's actually, you can't simply ignore the way that Christianity gave us a, a foundation. So as I was hearing more of these voices, secular voices, but far more um, sympathetic to a Christian worldview and the value of Christianity, it just made me wonder what's happening maybe there's something new happening. And, and yeah, I guess I just put that all under this title of the surprising rebirth of belief in God.
1: Hi, Tim here. If you are enjoying this conversation and want more episodes like this one, please let us know in the comments of this video on our YouTube channel. While you're there, you can also like this video, you can subscribe to our channel because it is a great way to support this ministry. We are a listener-supported ministry, and if you feel led to support the show with a financial gift, you can do so at ChristianityStillMakesSense.com and click on Donate. Now, back to the conversation with Justin.
2: I love the title of the book, Justin. You know, with 17 years, I mean, you have interviewed uh, the most well-known atheists in the world, and Christians. I said uh, when we interviewed you on Pastor's Perspective, I wouldn't be surprised if you're the most well-networked Christian apologist in the world. I mean, you have got so many connections. You're so, and you're and you're one of these guys. You're just so gracious to everybody, too, Justin. I've never you, I've never heard a bad comment about you, except again from Mark Driscoll. <laughs> he kind of messed your record up and reminded us that okay, Justin is a sinner. Um, <laughs> um, but my question, Justin, for you did you ever did you ever have a season of doubt? You know, at Christianity still makes sense. Uh, I went through a season where I literally thought I was going to be an apostate, and that was scary. And that was happening while one minute apologist mm. was growing, and I was pastoring a large church. I was wow. just encountering all these arguments, and the doubt was so overwhelming. Um, mm. I mean, I ended up in counseling, uh, antidepressants. You know, had a relapse. I mean. I feel like at times in my life, I've said before, I'm sure there are people out there, but I've never met a person that I would say has been hammered more by doubts. Yet mm. I don't, I hated my doubts. I didn't want to become a progressive mm. Christian. I'm glad that God mm. helped me to come through that. Mm. I'm just curious, like with you, do you feel like you had any like
0: shows where you're just
2: like, oh, maybe we got it wrong here. And what was that journey like for you?
0: Yeah, I, I definitely had, you know, I think there was firstly a season of doubt really well before my broadcasting career began, when I was still at university. And I think that was just at the point where I was starting to discover this thing that I later came to call Christian apologetics, because I was I was confronted by, you know, really intelligent people around me who were basically questioning my faith. And I hadn't really grown up in an environment where I'd had a real, really good grounding in kind of, yeah. you know, the the evidence for Christianity and that kind of thing. So, but, you know, I did discover at that point, you know, CS Lewis and others, and, and, and that was really helpful. But I think you're absolutely right that when, I kind of stepped into the lion's den with the unbelievable show and for 17 <laughs> years, I basically brought on all manner of very cogent oh. skeptics and atheists and agnostics and, you know, said, okay, let's test this thing. Does Christianity work and and all credit to the unbelievable listeners? Cause they, they got on board too. And they went for on that ride too. And in all honesty, I can say that there were definitely some, some shows, some periods where, I, I was like, "Wow, this is." I'm not sure quite how to make sense of this one because yeah. Bart Ehrman just came on, and you know, he would. I just read his book <laughs> or something, and and yeah, that's that's really tough. I'm not quite sure, sure. how my guest. What I found in the big scheme of things, though, was that I was able to start to put together kind of my own case for faith. And while I absolutely didn't claim to have an answer for every question that is out there and and every mystery. I came to see that ultimately you've kind of got to choose where you're going to put your faith because if you don't put it in Christianity, you will put it in something else. And the main contender for that among a lot of the guests that I was meeting was something called atheist naturalism. It was the idea that this is all there is, that the, the universe can ultimately be explained as a complex set of physical interactions matter in motion, the laws of nature. And the problem for me, when I finally kind of put all the pieces together in my head was that there are far more gaps in that story of reality than the story of Christianity. It's not that I can show you, you know, prove everything in the Christian worldview, but it makes more, far more of a coherent sense of the whole picture for me than the atheist naturalist view of reality. So I, I just found that that Christianity made better sense of things in the in the end, and I guess I just found my peace with those things that ultimately we may never know this side of eternity, uh, and and that kind of thing. What I did find was that at the core of it there was an intellectually credible historical core to Christianity, and a person whose influence and beauty you simply cannot deny, and for me that was enough. You know that that I I was like I, it, Jesus. Jesus works, you know, and and I'm 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 happy to to kind of stay here, and it's it's the best thing going as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, for me, when I was
2: in the midst of, I suppose, agnosticism would have seemed like the most appealing because I could just sit in critic's corner and just be like, yeah, but yeah, but. But then I came to the conclusion, as I would think about, like, oh, if I was to walk away from this, then what would be, you know, the set of questions or potential doubts that I would inherit. That are unforeseen Mm. to me right now so i would just try to put the hat on and go okay so i'm a muslim what what am i bothered by so i'm an atheist what am i bothered by so the atheists you know obviously they're going to you know come at us hard on the fact that there's suffering in the world yet on christianity at least there's you know ultimate justice they might want justice now but there's ultimate justice Mm. whereas on atheism there is no ultimate justice so i just would start kind of just putting the pieces together and i thought even on agnosticism uh, you know, the agnostic would concede there that there is an explanation. You just can't know it. So I thought, I'd rather give my life to the best explanation. And I think that's what you've done. And I think your book, Justin, is really going to show uh, just the lasting standing power, you know, of the Christian faith. How can your book uh, play a role in the local church today?
0: Well, I'm hoping that anyone who picks up this new book, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, it'll help to guide them through what the questions are that people are actually asking today. Sometimes I think we can get a bit stuck in the questions of yesterday. And to some extent, you know, That's as true. much as it's really important to have questions to those funda- answers to those fundamental questions like, does God exist? And what about the problem of evil? And, you know, how do we know the Bible is true? Those were questions that were more, I think, in a sense, being prompted by the new atheism, because they were going for a full frontal attack on those kinds of issues. Mm, Good point. I think now actually the kinds of questions that the average non-Christian person is asking are less kind of specifically does God exist, but more kind of how do I make sense of my life? How do I, you know, have a reason to get up in the morning? Uh, And that's what these new thinkers have been tapping into. They've recognized that there's basically a meaning crisis in the West, that the new atheism failed to deliver answers to people's sense of who am I? What am I here for? What's my purpose? and People like Jordan Peterson, Tom Holland, Douglas Murray, a number of these sort of new thinkers who are not specifically Christians but are very much sort of understand how much the Christian worldview gave people that sense of meaning and purpose. They're in a in a very interesting way sending people back. They're, they're a kind of gateway almost to people taking Christianity seriously again and, and asking themselves, well, well, maybe this might be the thing that that solves this sense of who am I and what am I here for. Um, and so for me. The, the value for the church is is to kind of l- look at the questions that are actually going on in your community around you maybe be more attuned as to the kind mm-hmm. of stories people are telling themselves today um because in fact i don't think the new atheism made that many converts to this kind of strict materialist naturalism most people today i think still would describe themselves as sort of well i i'm spiritual but not religious okay they've kind of they've, they've said no to kind of institutional religion But they might still pray occasionally and they might still kind of engage in some esoteric New Age practice or they they might even be into the occult. You know, people usually are not kind of completely closed off to the idea of something more, something transcendent. And the question for the church is how do we speak into that desire? How do we actually engage with that in a helpful, meaningful way that shows people that the story they're really looking for, is the big story the story of Christianity? So, so I'm hoping that in in various ways, as I as I tease that out through various um, individuals and themes in the book, that it'll help churches and Christians to kind of help to to tell their story more effectively to people. Yeah,
2: and no doubt it will, Justin. And I think too, as it relates to, you know, contextualizing, you know, what you're talking about. This is where relationships are going to be important. In fact, um, Jana Harmon. Uh, in her research, says that 82% of the people that were former atheists that did convert over had, um, you know, a positive relationship with a Christian. So that's significant. She's talking Mm -hmm. to 100 former atheists. 82% of them say it was having a connection and a good relationship with a Christian that I saw something different in. And, you know, just coming back from doing a conference with you know, uh, Frank Turk's CIA and a whole slew of apologists Well, we were listening to some of the emerging apologists and you can see what you're saying happening so much. Mm -hmm. And I think it's for the good where you would just hear the students come to give preparations and they would talk is the New Testament reliable, the cosmological argument. And it's like you start wondering how many times do we have to repackage this and what you saw this time. Uh, I know it's contested, but at least somebody was dealing with the topic, the Enneagram. Somebody else Mm. came and presented on um, PTSD and trauma and how it affects the brain and how Mm. we have to have an apologetic of mental health. Um, Mm. Transgenderism was a discussion, Um, not Mm. trusting your feelings. And so Mm. here we're beginning to see that I think apologists might be getting their head out of the sand a little bit, and maybe one of the dangers that scared so many people away on a broader scale is you had these new atheists uh, and they're making us feel so stupid for believing, and then like you said, we're reacting and we're reacting with the best of science, but that only grabs at a limited amount of people. Now I think mm. we can really do a catch-off mm. to show mm. the importance of apologetics. What do you think about that,
0: Justin? I, I, I think you're absolutely right. and. I think there is still a value, obviously, to that kind of more classical apologetics, you know, sure, where, where it is about the, the arguments and evidence. But I mean, one of the things that I think was really helpful for me in, in writing this book was was crystallizing the thought that probably apologetics at its best is actually a twofold approach. Um, and it's almost like a left and right brain approach. You know how 100%. they say your your left brain, left side of your brain is kind of that more logical, analytical kind of picking things apart type of part of your 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 mindset. And the right hand side of the brain, again, talking to generally, is that sort of more artistic, imaginative, kind of seeing the big picture kind of thing. And, and I think we sometimes treat apologetics as though it's just the left brain. It's just, you know, giving people facts and evidence and arguments and, you know, that's going to do the job. That's only half, or probably less than half, actually, of, of how most people are wired. And what you need to actually appeal to I think in the first instance is the imagination of someone. Mm-hmm. You've got to kind of make them realize why they would want this to be true. And I think that's where where, you know, I, I, I use the metaphor in the book a lot of um, people's story and the fact that people want to see themselves as living in a story. And that's why people are telling themselves so many stories today about identity and purpose and who they are. And and it's this kind of very pick and mix approach, you know, where I kind of invent my identity from scratch almost. And when you can help them to see that what they're really looking for is a story that's already exists, that has given meaning and purpose to generations and millennia, you know, over a couple of millennia to to all kinds of people. And the question is, why would I want that story instead of the story I'm living in right now? And I think what you have to do is help them to see how that story makes sense of their story. And that can be done in all kinds of ways. I mean c.s lewis was a master of showing sure people is. why they wanted christianity to be true he created a world called narnia which you know everyone has probably tapped the back of a wardrobe just in case there might be a magical <laughs> land of fauns and castles and you know knights there but he said what if this world with this king called aslan what if it actually were true what if there really was a world of adventure and valor and bravery and ultimate meaning and love and purpose and he made people want that world to be true and he said well guess what it is true there is such a thing in our world and and for me it that's really important is to kind of stimulate people's imagination show them why they would want this story to be true and then do the left brain bit which is also important of showing what that it is true (laughs) there are good reasons to trust jesus really did walk and talk and and, and came back to life, and that there is a God who you know makes sense of the universe and, and everything else. Um, but I think if you if you only do the, the latter, you, you it it's harder for people to get there because they're, they're not as invested in it. Um, so mm-hmm. so I've got some suggestions in the book about how the church can can go on that imaginative journey with people as well.
2: Yeah, that's really good, Justin. Uh, I mean, I feel like that's. My wiring, left and right brain, and a lot of times, if I'm with just pure apologists, I I feel like, well, you know, I'm a little bit maybe eccentric, <laughs> and I love all the kind of the, the the art side and the right brain. But then if I'm if I'm with just kind of you know the right brain folks, I I want logic and and reasoning, and so maybe I feel like, sadly, sometimes the professors are considered the left brain and the pastors are considered the right brain and so the church is lacking in doctrine and the professors might be lacking in creative ways to do it and then you find someone like Lewis who obviously was an anomaly and he was criticized even by his own dons for the way that he he lived his life well as we think about you know wrapping up the show I just want to tell our audience that on today Christianity Still Makes Sense is the great Justin Briley. Uh, And just love Justin. And he has written another book called Unbelievable. If you haven't read that, pick it up. It really was an amazing read. I loved it. And I can't wait um, for your book to come out on Audible, because I am going to be listening to that um, for (laughs) sure. Uh, And I'm just so thankful for your ministry, Justin. As we wrap up, is there anything that you feel like we shouldn't leave on the table. Anything that you would like to say to the audience in our final
0: few minutes? I guess I just want to say, um, I hope this book, this new book, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, gives people hope and a bit of optimism. I think we've kind of gone through a few years now in the church of a lot of negativity, a lot of stories yeah. of, you know, falls from grace, scandals, toxicity. There's been a kind of an, an almost a reckoning, especially in the evangelical church. Um, and I think that's, In some ways, that stuff has to happen. Um, Sometimes God has to shake things up and prune dead stuff for new life to to blossom. What I hope this book gives people hope for, though, is that God is not finished with the church. Um, The church Mm. has been through a series over the last 2000 years of deaths and rebirths of of different kinds. And I feel like we're going through one of those now. But on the other side of it, God's purposes will be fulfilled. And there are a lot of people, I think, who are going to be coming in on the tide of the kind of the 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 forgotten hopes and lost dreams of atheism which just didn't answer their questions and i think people are maybe ready to hear this story afresh and the question is will the church be ready to to receive those kind of refugees from this meaning crisis that the west is in i i hope that we will and i hope that the book helps people to to do that that's fantastic justin i think it's with tyndale correct that's correct. Yeah. And it releases on September the 12th, but you can pre-order it from my website right now at justinbrierly.com. That's great. Yeah. My book is coming out in
2: April with Tyndale and I try to hit on it in the topic that we're talking about a little bit. Does Christianity still make sense? Cause I think that's what mm. people are asking. Does it still make mm. sense? And so I try to do an apologetic, but it's a little bit of kind of biography, kind of how a, a near apostate answers today's biggest objections. Uh, Cause Amazing. there are things about Christianity that I concede, that don't make sense, like Ezekiel laying on a side for 390 days and then flipping over and giving God another 40 days. Chiropractor, (laughs) anyone. (laughs) But Justin, thank you so much, buddy. Uh, We really appreciate you and can't wait to
1: see you in person. Until next time, peace out, my friend.
0: Thank you so much, Bobby.
1: Great to talk with you. If you find yourself unable to trust after your experience with new atheists, I would invite you to watch this episode of Making Sense of Scripture. We'll see you next time.